Hello there, my name is Brett Stewart, and welcome to the final episode of Exploring the Blues in Chicago. That's right, it's time to close out on this wonderful, wonderful series. We've talked with label owners and artists and historians. It's been a great journey, but now it's time to bring it right back on home, where it matters the most. The fans of the music, the people who love it, the people who keep it alive and make it the historical landmark that it is that I can create a show like this around this entire genre and talk with such terrific guests just so long. These conversations would often go two, three, four hours. You're hearing tidbits of them more often than not. And the fans allow that to happen because they keep this music alive. They're the ones who go to the shows. They're the ones who buy the records. And that's really what matters at the end of the day. I sat down with several fellow podcasters who are fantastic blues fans, and they also happen to be musicians in their own rights. So it was certainly a compelling conversation. Check it out. Just to hear you call me daddy. Just one more time. So I got on the horn in my podcasting communities and got two of my favorite people on the show today, both of which also happen to be musicians, which I think will be even a more interesting dynamic in this discussion. The first of which is uh, Phil Rude. Phil Rude is, of course, from Blazing Caribou Studios. He's a phenomenal artist. You can find him on philrude.com. That's R-O-O-D. And the awesome art for the show that you see, he so graciously let me use from his back catalog. It's such a cool piece. Uh, you can also find him on Sketching Comedy, on Baroque Bottom Mountain. All of that is right over on Blazing Caribou. Phil, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Brett. And uh, when describing me, I would use the loosest possible term of musician uh, that you that you can come up with. <laughs> I, I I bang around on the guitar a little bit. I would not call myself proficient, uh, but uh, but it's a good time. It's a hobby for me. That's okay. That's okay. You know what the funny thing is? Is you're just as humble as some of the guys I have talked to for this show that are literally on the road doing it. Like they themselves don't want to admit that they can play guitar well. I promise but, you, there's a difference. There's a big gap. I, I'm sure us, there. But I'm it's sure there good. is. But uh, it's a pleasure to have you as always. And joined also by Peter Fisher. Of course, you've heard Peter Fisher all over the internet on all different shows. And right now, in particular, he's doing the joys of image manipulation, which you can find over on Facebook Live. I believe right peter no you my youtube channel oh the youtube channel okay what is yeah. your youtube channel i don't know I'll, I'll send you the link and you can put it in the notes show notes or something like that absolutely but what you're doing is live streams of image manipulation which essentially is is photoshopping to an extent but you can you describe a little bit about what you're doing well it's mainly photoshopping i take like uh i've taken a picture of a cat drooling on its owner and someone mentioned that it looked like a, a vampire so i turned the, it into a vampire cat i changed the the drool things into blood right on and you've done an hour 20 minutes every sunday very cool and of course you are a musician as well uh, you play a couple different instruments don't you yep uh guitar bass in high school i played trumpet and saxophone and french horn and uh, I I can play a couple chords on banjo, mandolin, and uh, drums. 
Very cool. That is that's that's more expansive than me. I I can stick in the stringed instruments and feel comfortable with guitar and bass and to an extent maybe like ukulele. But once I start going into things that require my hands to do something else, it's just a whole different ballpark. I can't do percussion in particular, especially because then I have multiple feet moving around and that's just a mess. Uh, but we're here to talk about the blues and in particular Chicago blues because I've spent so long on this going and talking to artists and all these wonderful people and I've learned so much about this community. But I think what's great about the blues is I'm the only one of us that's in Chicago, but the Chicago blues blues is so expansive both in in sound and in influence dating back you know pre-british invasion that everybody around the world can find something to love about about the blues which is why when i would talk to someone like frank bang who toured with buddy guy for five years you know he saw the whole world he saw i think he said he saw 24 countries with buddy uh during his time with him and that just really spoke volumes to me because that's that's how far the blues stretches. So I, what I wanted to do was go to each of you and learn a little bit about uh, what turned you on to the blues, you know, what, about what age you were, what you were interested in, what artists you were interested in, kind of your blues story, if you will. Uh, Phil, what about you? Um, I, uh, I was thinking about this, like when I really kind of was introduced to the blues and I, I would have to say honestly i grew up watching the blues brothers on on wgn and i know that's sort of the kmart of authentic blues but uh you know i learned later on like all that that whole band was like like the who's who of the r&b community and and things like that they were the saturday night live band at the time and you know steve cropper and duck dunn and uh uh matt murphy and all these guys you know uh, paul schaefer was in the original band was what in the movie uh but it sort of introduced the sound to me and uh and the blues in general as as a, as a legitimate thing and and probably when i was in high school and i started getting into uh uh you know things like uh clapton you know started kind of working back with zeppelin and, and clapton and then you read the interviews and they tell you their influence and and trace it on back um you know, and and I kind of happened to be in high school about the time of like the early '90s blues revival that kind of I think I think was really championed by you know Clapton put out his Unplugged album at that time. He was starting to put out blues albums, blues records every year of uh, you know covers and and standards. And I think I just kind of happened to be right place, right time to to soak a lot of that up and and be able to kind of yeah just i always i worked backwards and then kind of found found people back through there and got into you know delta blues and chicago blues and and sort of started picking through that i always kind of gravitated more towards uh uh the later you know the the british invasion uh sure you know the blues influenced rock guys of the 60s and 70s uh but i knew where it all came from and and it's hard to be a music appreciator of any kind without really recognizing that the blues kind of kicked kicked off every genre and 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 seeing the through line that runs through there. So it's it's always been sort of I've always sort of been in touch with it just for those reasons. You know what I mean? I I do, and I like that you use the words music appreciator and uh, having an understanding of that music because. Even if you don't like the blues, you look back at 
especially the British Invasion stuff, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones love the blues. That's why they brought oh, yeah. Howlin' Wolf on Shindig, when Shindig would never have brought a 300-pound, 60-year-old black man onto, onto primetime <laughs> air. Uh, and Which is funny, because in the clip, they pass it off like it was their idea, and the kids go nuts when it was never their idea. They were put into a tough position by the Stones. And when the Stones came to Chicago... They wanted to record at, at Chess Records, and they wanted to go to these places. When the Beatles came to Chicago, they wanted to go down and record on Record Row, which is something they did. And I think that that's such an interesting lineage, because everybody I've talked to, to some extent, has mentioned those great acts from the from the British invasion. Even if it's like you know, Led Zeppelin or something like that, a lot of people say Led Zeppelin was, was the gateway to metal, well, it was also the gateway backward because it was it just was louder blues. Yeah, absolutely, uh, kind of those both first ways. two Zeppelin records are are blues records, way more than their than their metal records. You know, it wasn't till uh, I think the middle to late Zeppelin catalog that they started getting heavier. Oh yeah, and, uh, and they were and, like and a Bonham is really the reason that I think you know that Thunder that that they are associated with metal so much. I've always seen them as much more of a, a blues act than than uh than a metal one. Oh certainly especially when you listen many, to the lyrics uh, lawsuits that would uh from old blues men that would agree with you about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now Peter what about you? What was your pathway to discovering the blues at, at what point in your life and what was that like? Well my dad was the biggest fan of bluegrass so I've listened to it since I was born. So that that's sort of like the country version of instead of down up in the city it's up in the mountains so yeah that for a lot and uh i don't know it's just blues is so so ubiquitous Ooh, i used the word right uh in in music all around it's pretty hard not to point that oh yeah that's the blues blues there where all the other stuff was was wasn't because it's it's like it's the building block on most of most music that's not pop pop music but like that sure certainly and even it is a building block on maybe even pop pop because whatever inspired them at some point was probably inspired by the blues and i think one common misconception amongst people that amongst just common music fans and i don't mean that in a in a condescending way or anything is just i think the nature of the blues being called the blues makes people think it's sad music. And yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm drinking at three in the morning at the bar and my baby left me and I can't go home because I don't have a key to the house anymore. There's a lot of that stuff. Sure. But the blues is an expression of one's soul in more than just pining and loss and sadness. It's there's happy blues and there's, there is uh there's, you know, thoughtful blues that the challenges your mind and there's danceable blues and pretty much everything in between and i think that sometimes for people not overly familiar with the genre they might not know that i actually did a bit of research yesterday on wikileaks or not wikileaks wiki the the wikipedia about the blues and it it might not just be the sad part, the blues, there were some, some connotations of its the effects after alcohol. So it's not so much it's you're down because you're the blues is that you've been drunk and you're feeling bad. And that's what causes the blues. <laughs> and it's, 
because <laughs> it, it goes back to like seven, I think it was 1739. There was a thing about the blue devils that, that come after that are thing with alcohol. So since the blues were taken, taken place in like, like bars and juke joints, I'm I'm sure they wouldn't yeah. have had any alcohol there. No, <laughs> no, not during prohibition. No, no not no. at all. <laughs> yeah, in so, fact, uh, yeah. on that page, you're right. You know the uh, the term blues was associated with drinking alcohol, meaning uh, which survives the phrase blue law, which prohibited the sale of alcohol on Sunday. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, uh, can and, I... and the fact that the the slide players would use use whiskey bottles as as slides too. Definitely. That, that, yeah. Uh, Phil, you had something. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, point out, I've always seen uh, Chicago blues in particular as much more celebratory than, you know, the. I, I've always seen the uh, Chicago blues is sort of that it's a blues that you play in the club. The Delta blues is the blues you play in the front porch. And it's it's mm. a little more. Uh, I don't want to say working man's because it's all it's all working class music, but it's city it music. It seems perhaps. a little slicker. It seems a little more celebratory than, um, than maybe like the Delta Blues, more, uh, you know, front porch kind. Of, I've always, I mean, this is all sweeping generalization on on both ends of that spectrum. Oh, of course, but, of course. Um, but it it does seem like it, yeah, it's it's almost like something for dancing. It's Chicago blues is for dancing. You go to the club to hear it. It's a little more uh, slick, maybe, and a little more f- maybe formal is not the word. I'm trying. I'm I hear what you're saying, though. I do. And I think it, but, part of that uh, might just be a product of the environment, right? You look at Delta Blues, and Delta sure. Blues, of course, morphed in the Chicago Blues in that great migration. And you have an environment where, where A, you're in a loud city, the L's just as loud as it's ever been. It's seriously, sure. it's not much quieter now than it was when they were figuring this <laughs> stuff out at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> you try to take a phone call underneath it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, you, you're in that kind of environment and you got to plug in. And that's, uh, you know, originally that's what, that's what, um, what, what, uh, you know, resonator guitars were popularized very briefly for that. And then those kind of right. went away and immediately switched to electric. And that was just the urban feel of the sound was, was, Having that electric sound, having that 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 scratchy harmonica, something that's not overly present in Delta Blues, right? And it's just a whole different tradition. And then, of course, you have songs that transcend both. You know, I, I, I obviously the the cliche Delta to, to to Chicago blues song is "Sweet Home Chicago," and you can play that just as well in Delta stylings as you can with twenty people on a stage. Sure. Uh, even though I mean, just, you listen to the old Robert Johnson recordings that are that are just nasty and dirty and scratchy and low res is all hell. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's a great song. It's a great song through and through, you know, no matter how produced it is. So, yeah, totally. you know that uh, there's also the fact that Chicago is what electrified the blues up until then. It would be just guys with acoustic guitars be. And and another thing that would make the difference is in Chicago during the winter, I'm thinking back in the 20s and 30s, you had to get the people dancing to keep from freezing to death. <laughs> Whereas in in uh, in down in the Delta, and I'm sure it's the same in Florida, it's hot. 
It's hot, man. It's humid. Yeah. I want to sit under you the shade tree and listen to music. Yeah. You don't want to be moving around too much. But then again, you've got like the uh, the funeral marches in New Orleans where they'll be slow and plodding, and then the trumpet player will blow out the horn, and then it'll be a party. Certainly. With, so th- there's also that. There's there's the dancing and the celebration has its place in the in the delta blues it's just not as it the the environment in chicago made it made it important for them to be a little bit more energetic i guess or physical yeah i think you're right i think there is something to that i just anecdotally whenever sweet home chicago comes up i love that that song might really not even be about chicago are you guys kind of familiar with this I am not. So in when the original lyrics of Sweet Home Chicago and you listen, he's, you know, talking about uh, going back to California. You know, I want to go back home to California, Sweet Home Chicago. There's a tiny little town in California named Chicago. And th- th- it has been theorized that people think he might be singing about California, that Robert right. Johnson maybe was never singing about Chicago. Uh, <laughs> in fact, um, the, the, the front line of the Wikipedia article is, the song has become a popular anthem for the city of Chicago, despite ambiguity in Johnson's original lyrics. <laughs> uh, and I love that. But in, in fact, just to go off on my Robert Johnson tangent really quick, for people who are interested in in learning the root of blues and in particular the root of blues that will be immediately recognizable to you that Robert Johnson catalog there's only 42 songs on it the man only recorded 42 songs ever in his life he died very young uh you can get that on CD or I know it came out on vinyl for the first time this year and that is like oh, a did it really oh yeah on record store day they put out the record so look for it it's it'll be hanging uh, around because it wasn't will. a big seller and they remastered it all, and that is like the entry. That that is like you know one oh one in a way because you listen to that and you hear "Sweet Home Chicago." You see, you hear "Crossroads," which is completely revitalized and switched yeah. around later with "Cream" and later Eric Clapton, and then all that good stuff. And that's like the one oh one right there. That's a, just a great record to go back to. So I guess what I would pivot to is for both of you, what are artists, perhaps more specifically Chicago artists, in blues that you've really loved or appreciated over the years? Uh, Peter, what about you? I I wouldn't know. Uh, I don't know. Could you come back to me while I think about it? Yes, of course. What about you, Phil? <laughs> um. I I have a hard time drawing the line on some of these. Uh, I always associate John Lee Hooker with the Delta, but I think he, I don't know where he falls like in any kind of formal classification. If he, cause I could see him swinging either way. Um, he tends to be classified. I would argue as a, an electrified version of Delta, I think is a yeah. really good way to perhaps put it. Okay, so he's got yeah. He maybe has a foot in the Chicago camp, but his style is, I think, a little more Delta. Um, But like uh, you know, BB King uh, definitely. I know he's from the South, but I always associated him much more uh, slick, wearing the suit, you know, playing Lucille and and you know, big stage shows, Uh, and uh, you know, just I don't know the more the, the he's probably the biggest name that stands out. 
Um, like I said, I was always a little more leaning into like the British invasion guys who were right uh, more influenced as opposed to the the really old school blues guys. I have sort of a a passing knowledge, but not really a a, a deep cut kind of knowledge of of who's who and where they fall, whether it be uh, Chicago or or the Delta. So what was some of your favorite blues records? It's kind of hard for me to say sometimes. What about just favorite blues records in general? Uh, Blues records. I got, um, I don't know. I always, I always dig the first, uh, and this is later again, uh, the first Taj Mahal album. Mm, um, Okay. He he really plays the, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think, Dwayne Allman always talked about like that's why he picked up a slide was because of that Taj Mahal record that came out and I know that's later that's like in the 60s but um uh some of the old uh Sunhouse uh uh John Lee Hooker Howlin' Wolf these these things that just sort of bounced around and were always there they were always in the conversation and and you always heard uh just anyone with like a really distinct voice and a distinct sound always kind of um, always seemed to come back around. I couldn't pin down a regular, uh, a single album because I never listened to those in album form. Uh, by the time I was picking up blue stuff, it was all like Rhino collections and, and stuff like that. And then, um, just, yeah, again, in the, in the nineties, I was picking up newer blues, like, uh, alligator, like we were talking about off air, alligator records was putting out like smaller, you know, uh, geez, I don't even remember names, but they were like smaller indie blues guys who were like newer on the scene. And that's what mm-hmm. alligator always stood out to me as being like this, uh, indie blues label. And oh, we definitely. would go into, you know, whatever tower and pick up just, Oh, this guy looks cool. This guy, and we, we, right. uh, a couple of friends of mine, we would just go listen to these guys we'd never heard of, uh, about that time. Uh, G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band started putting out uh, records with jazz and blues on them, you know, like real standards kind of stuff. And it was I don't know. I was into all of it. But um, nailing down any of the classic stuff is always still hard for me. I know where the influence comes from, but I'm sure not the I'm not the Wikipedia of uh, (laughs) Depression era blues. You know, Well, I I think uh, you mentioned in particular, you know, obviously B.B. King played with a lot of Chicago artists. He was mostly a New York artist. And then there was also Howlin' Wolf that you mentioned. And Howlin' Wolf was certainly a Chicago artist. In fact, I would argue that another two records, as long as I'm throwing out some recommendations to listeners, uh, my all-time favorite blues record is Moanin' in the Moonlight, 1959. And that was finally when Chess decided, oh yeah, maybe we could put all these songs, because they're all really good, and put them on a record. Because prior to that, Howlin' was just releasing 45s. And it's a phenomenal, phenomenal record that has so many of those quintessential Howlin' Wolf songs. You know, stuff like... Uh, how many more years and smokestack lightning and all night boogie and I'm leaving you right. evil evil's a great song and uh, that's a great record and then another record that has always stood out to me as incredibly good another chess record uh, was the London Howlin' Wolf Sessions, which came out in 71. And those are really unique because that merged the two parties we've been talking about the most, which was the B- British Invasion guys and the traditional guys, or at least tra- I guess traditional would be Delta, the newer traditional guys, which would be Chicago <laughs> Blues, because that record... Yeah. 
was uh, Steve Winwood, uh, Charlie Watts, Eric Clapton, oh, okay. all playing with Howlin'. And that's such a brilliant record. In fact, they remastered it last year. So it's out there better than ever if people want to listen to it. Uh, Peter, has anything come to mind for you? Yes. the uh, Maybe the Elvis of the of the blues in Chicago, maybe the one that made it popular in the, in the greater world, I guess, uh, Bo Diddley. Mm, Okay. A lot of, you can't have a blues beat without the Bo Diddley beat. In fact, Bo, Bo was very frustrated about that because he felt that everybody who used that beat was entitled to pay him royalty, something he went to court for numerous times in his life, frustratingly losing every single one of them. He tried to get Bruce Springsteen on it, you know, with like, you know, uh, what is what is the song on? Um, uh, there's a song on, on his first, on, on Born the Run. There's a rec, uh She's the Night or something like that. I can't remember, but it's, it uses the Bo Diddley beat, and that's something Bruce used a lot. So I'm sorry, go ahead. I just think he's such a fascinating guy. Yeah, him and Little Richard should have a have a class action against all of that. <laughs> Little Richard is famous for going, "I'm the originator, the emancipator. What did I get? Nothing." <laughs> Which is kind of funny because you know it's it's ridiculous when you think about Bo Diddley in particular because. He ripped the beat right off of African folk music. It's not the Bo Diddley beat. It's their beat. So he was certainly not wholly original in it. But then again, no one is ever wholly original in pretty much anything. Uh, Yeah, Bo Diddley's great. And and that's a great pick. Um, What a great guitar style was what I loved about him. And he played great guitars, too. He had, like, the box guitars, like the The cigar box box guitars. guitars. Crazy looking. Yeah. Part part of the reason why he had such percussive is that he was a boxer and that the, his his boxing gave, gave him the idea to get it like the extra the oomph out of it by just wailing on the strings that's awesome like percussive I love that. about it yeah. yeah that's so cool i i think what makes blues special in a, in a unique way for me and this is kind of what i want to delve into next is it's just we talk about all these artists and they're all playing the same genre, but their interpretations of it were so drastically different. And we can look back at, you know, Bo or Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf or go farther back and Sun House, uh, Lead Belly, uh, Robert Johnson. And it's just this interesting lineage of American music that everything else was building around it. You look at you look at blues music and Delta, and all around that was was happening with folk music and country music and and bluegrass, early bluegrass and early gospel, and all of those were kind of building up around one another in similar areas and using very similar styles. In fact, one argument I've, I've made before, and I understand this is painting with a broad brush, is that uh, for a lot of people in uh, rural, poor, white areas perhaps in like the 20s and the 30s like Appalachia and stuff country was kind of their blues you listen to you know early Hank Williams and early stuff like that Carter family it's depressing stuff but but in the stuff that's not depressing deals with a lot of the same themes that blues does and then you go to blues and in the south they were listening to the same exact themes but they weren't listening to the Carter family they're listening to like Lead Belly or whatever and you keep going and they, all these Americana genres just rise together, and blues very uniquely just continues to grow and expand. And today, I still think we're seeing really innovative changes in the blues independent scene, which is something I've talked about with 
artists is whether or not they think blues is stagnating or not. And some of them are afraid that that's going to happen. Do you think that guys would have, that would happen at some point? I th- I think anything can stagnate if, if there aren't going to be uh, innovators in it. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, everybody, uh, you know, I, I joke about being a, a bad guitar player. That's why I've, always played three chord blues on guitar because you can do it. Anyone can do it. Anyone can play that three chord, you know? And I think in that, that nineties, uh, uh, revival of it, we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of hair bands that were coming and go, we're playing a blues song now. And it was just the most boring <laughs> soulless, uh, uh, you know, just stupid thing ever, but they were doing it and claiming, look, you know, we're influenced by the blues too, but you know, I, I think, you just need to keep an eye on people who are going to to innovate it. Um, John Mayer was probably on his third album before I realized he could actually play guitar. And I saw him <laughs> on Austin City Limits, and he wasn't playing pop music. He was playing with Buddy Guy and and you know really wailing on a on a strat. And I was like, oh my god, he's like a he's like a real blues musician. Like he can really do this. And I had, I had no idea because he was paying the bills with top 40 music. And then, uh, yeah. What did he put out the John Mayer trio album? You know, maybe John Mayer is not the greatest example, but like he's somebody that if he wants to, he can take those reins and, and do what he wants to with the blues, introduce it to a new audience and move the genre forward. Um, you know, and I just, I think, I think we need more artists who are willing to, to do things like that. Certainly. And I, I wish he would, because one of the artists I talked to for the show mentioned that he likes being a, that blues will always be a small pond, but it's sometimes it's okay to be a big fish in a small pond. It might be better than being a small fish in a big pond. And that's what he likes about the scene here in Chicago. And, you know, I just wish that there was more reason for contemporary artists who can, pull a larger audience, someone like John Mayer, to go and do it, but they won't do it, particularly him. I have beef with John Mayer, and my beef with John Mayer <laughs> is that he is a phenomenal guitarist. He can rock the blues, like you said. That John Mayer trio stuff is superb, and then he goes out and puts, you know, your body is a wonderland, and now he's back right, again with yeah. some bubbly, you I, know, I, ugh. I specifically remember seeing that Austin City Limits and halfway through going, God, what a waste. You know, yes. I just I'm like this guy's squandering this. I mean, I, it's great that it's on Austin City Limits, and probably 12 people are watching this right now. You know, like it, it, it's not <laughs> pulling the audience that it used to, but it just, uh, you know, he's he's being heard by so many people doing, in my opinion, the wrong, the wrong. You know, he's on he has he's at uh, the crossroads, and he took the wrong road. You know, and, <laughs> and I just I would I would love to see him put out you know, every other album, put out a blues album, you know, put out a live record playing, playing blues or blues rock or something like, uh, just to keep it moving forward. Peter talked about, uh, the, the, the similarities between bluegrass and, and blues and look at the leaps forward bluegrass has made in the last 20 years with, uh, Alison Krauss and, uh, uh, Nickel Creek and uh, uh, Bella Fleck, all these, uh, even Steve Martin's putting out incredible <laughs> bluegrass right. music. You know, like bluegrass has had a resurgence uh, because new artists have picked up those instruments 
and decided to take it front and center and take it forward. And I, I really think blues has not done that in 20 years and kind of is due to, to take that forward again. I, I, I wouldn't completely blame Robert. No, uh, uh, John Mayer for going back to the pop. I'm putting most of the blame on the record companies for that because oh your your album didn't do as much go back to that thing it's, oh, it's sure. music yeah. but there he's got the pressure from the record company goes well oh, your contract's almost coming up uh maybe we need a couple like five more hit songs from you so do that thing instead of that yeah it's all fine but we need to make some money and the kids aren't earning into that thing right now they want to hear sure. about the uh, want you to want you to sound a little bit like uh justin bieber now so uh, do a <laughs> do a song like what he would do well I, I would say two things uh is that one phil a couple times has mentioned that revival in the 90s to an extent and a lot of that revival i, I think was championed by some older artists who had some freedom to do it uh, yeah, definitely. You, Eric Clapton had the freedom to kind of do what he wanted. Uh, another one, I got to throw him in this podcast somewhere. I haven't had him in any previous episodes. Bob Dylan, he was putting out blues records in 93 and 94, and they're great Delta blues records. He did. Uh, he, won, he won a Grammy for the second one. Uh, but I look at Eric Clapton's career, and this is just Clapton as a very specific example. I like Clapton a lot, but there is a there is a time in the 80s where I don't know if he just got lazy or just got bored <laughs> because I listened to like August or I listened to Money and Cigarettes and I know some people like those records and they're fine, but then I listened to some of the stuff he did when he was more energized and when he was doing, you know, before that slow hand and, you know, that sort of thing. And then later on when he had the MTV unplugged in 92, and then later he went on in the nineties to do a bunch of really cool stuff. And then later in the two thousands, yeah, cradle and all that. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. From the cradle pilgrim. Uh, he did, um, he did the Robert records? Johnson tribute album, uh, did the Robert Johnson really tribute a few album. years ago and the and JJ the Kale, one. all the crossroad festivals. Right. Yep. So he came back to form after, you know, wandering about for about a decade. And maybe he had a drug habit to pay for back then. I think he, he was cashing oh. checks in in uh in the 80s, you know, like there were yeah, there were some there were some definite uh uh lazier albums. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it was it was by the numbers kind of stuff in the 80s. And, um and yeah. then his kid dying. Right, right, in, right. In uh, and that yeah, he had some tragedy there, too. Um, Certainly. And I think he had the freedom later on to hopefully get into some of that. And I'm hoping that maybe some of these artists who have the ability to do great blues, John Mayer as our primary example of one of them, maybe when they have some freedom, they'll go ahead and, and use that. I don't know if they would or not. Um, for example, Clapton put out a record, it would have been two years ago, no, three years ago now, called The Breeze. And it was all artists doing J.J. Kale covers. It was right after J.J. died. Yeah. And yeah. it's a great, great album. And there's got people like Willie Nelson on there doing J.J. Kale. It's great. But John Mayer's on there twice, and he's brilliant. He's one of the highlights of the record. Uh, I wish he'd do that. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to mention is one of the beacons of Chicago blues, perhaps the beacon of Chicago blues, is the Chicago Blues Festival. It happens every June. This year it's going to be June 9th to 11th. I think this podcast is actually coming out around then. And I'm looking at the lineups. And as a blues fan, 
I, I'm stoked to go to this because it's like Billy Branch, William Bell, uh, Gary Clark Jr., Rhiannon Giddens, Ronnie Baker Brooks, Carl Weathersby. Uh, and these are great artists, Freddie Dixon. But then I think about it and I think like, what is what do all these names besides two have in common? I'm like, oh, they're all over the age of 50. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's like every show I go to <laughs> at this point. Uh, but that does show that there are not necessarily, at least within this microcosm, younger artists getting onto these stages. You know, I looked at Ronnie Baker Brooks on this and I love Ronnie and I loved his dad and I love his brother, but Ronnie's 50 now. I, I often forget because I forget how old that lineage is going back that even though his dad just died, uh, he's still 50 years old. He's not a young, he's not a young right. guy. And I think the youngest person on here is probably Gary Clark Jr. Maybe unless Rihanna's younger, he's 33 uh, she might be in her late 20s. She's brilliant. I would love to see them. Um, no, she's older than him. She's 40. So the youngest person on here is 33, and he's kind of, I guess he's a blues rock artist, perhaps? And he's the okay. youngest by about a decade. Well, it's... Um, that's really interesting for a couple of reasons, and, and this will also tie into the Eric Clapton, you know, putting out what he's putting out later in his life. Uh, I look at things like you know the last handful of albums johnny cash made with american uh in my opinion that's the best stuff he ever did i think i think we're sort of coming into a time where we are uh starting to look at some of these elder statesmen of music and and looking to them and saying okay now that that seems to be the time when they are going i'm going to do what i want to do now and we're seeing some really really interesting stuff I heard a, a podcast the other day that was talking about Kurt Cobain and the mm. tragedy isn't the music that stopped being made in the nineties. It's wondering what he could have done. He'd be like 50 now. And they're like, would he be playing some uh, kind of alt country stuff? Would he be more in like a Jeff Tweedy kind of camp where he's, he's playing acoustic alt country shows, you know, and, 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 being really artistic about it, you know, and, and I think, you know, there, I have hope that some of the artists like, you know, we will keep talking about mayor. I'm sure there's others <laughs> that they'll get to a point in their life where he just goes, I just want to make blues records from that. I have a, a pile of money that I'm sitting on. I have uh, creative freedom in my record company or the ability to put this out on my own. And I'm just going to make blues EPs till the, till the cows come home, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, hopefully by that time we'll, you know, we'll still have Johnny Lang and, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepard and, uh, uh, Derek trucks and, uh, some, you know, some of these other guys who are around my age, uh, that are, you know, blues artists who kind of had a, a flash in the pan. I'm, I'm hoping they, get a second life and get to come around again. And, you know, they're still all out there making music. Go, and go I think that's what, what's going to usher the blues into, you know, later years. Going along with your age thing, thinking, well, with your, the artists at the blues thing, I was thinking, well, I remember the blue guys, Robert Cray. Robert Cray, in, yeah. In the, in the 80, late 80s, early 90s. I go, yeah, he shouldn't be. I looked him up on, on Wikipedia. He's 63. Robert Gray yeah. is 63. <laughs> I'm like, oh, he's a young... No, he's not. Uh, he I was a young guy, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
And all these acts are great. Like I, I've seen Robert a couple times, and he will blow you away. He it's was just, just down interesting. Here a couple months ago, and I missed him. But uh, oh, he's yeah. awesome. And I'm looking at these at these acts, and I just hope that I hope that Phil's right, and that maybe some of these younger artists will morph into more traditional genres or genres that have influenced them as they get later on in their careers. I also think that you mentioning the elder statesman is interesting because. Perhaps I'm going to make a very broad sweeping generalization of my own generation here. I'm going to say that there is a t- we are at a point right now where millennials are cool with old people. And what I mean by that, as I should explain, is that you have millennials who are going to Mavis Staples concerts. And that's not just me because I should because I know because I go to them. And there's other people my age there and they're going there because uh uh she was doing stuff with Jeff Tweedy for five years. Now she's right. doing stuff with M. Ward in the 90s. She did stuff with Prince. I know that stuff wasn't quite as successful, but there is a reverence of her authenticity that they strive for. And it's not just Mavis. You look at, you know, Wanda Jackson's going to be in town in a couple weeks here in Chicago. And she sold out City Winery. And, you know, Wanda Jackson's 79 years old. Uh, I can't think of anything she's really done besides like hard-headed woman in 1958, but um, Jack White got a hold of her. He's another one we should mention. He's a great blues guitarist. Yeah, uh, he um, actually. Yeah, he's totally uh, great. Jack, Jack White got a hold of her and produced a couple records for her over at Third Man Records, and she's covering you know Thunder on the Mountain, which is an old, which is a new Bob Dylan song, and it's great stuff. And then I think of like you know Charles Bradley. You know Charles Bradley put out his first big record what, two years ago? And he's, I think he's he's in his late 60s, and the man is brilliant. He's so brilliant. He's 68, and he's a funk artist, and my generation loves him. So I also have some solace in that, because I think that the authenticity of these genres, whether it be funk or blues or soul, can still be captured by a younger generation through an older generation, because my generation's at a point right sure. now where they're cool to go to a show with a 70-year-old. And I don't know if it's always been like that, because I tell my friends, hey, do you want to go to Wanda Jackson? And they're like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And I think that's really cool. I think that speaks to those you know, elder statesmen, again, coming back to prominence again. It is. I see a, I see a, a knowledge in your age group, uh, Brett, you know, I'm, I'm over 40. Uh, I, I go to a record store in Fort Myers down here and I see a couple of kids in there about your age and they got the, the, the black Ray-Ban frames and the skinny jeans <laughs> and, and all the, all the young hipster millennial, uh, stuff, but they'll sit and talk about traffic records with me and, right. and, you know, John Prine and, and they know all this stuff, you know, they're, they're in a, they're in a used record store. This isn't new vinyl. This is all old stuff. And, and it's, I mean, there is a, there is a knowledge there and there's a, um, there's a desire to, to see where the new stuff came from. I think that would just the same as when I was young and I wanted to know where, where Clapton evolved from. I think, I think that's not gone away in, in all the, you know, in all these years, I think it's an ongoing thing that kids all will always trace back, you know, who they like and, and figure out where it came from. Yeah. And it's also easier for, for my generation, I think, because oh, it's much easier now I than wanna, it was, uh, 
you Spotify, you don't even have to buy it all. You can go no. in and track it all back. You know how many hundreds of dollars that I spent on CDs <laughs> and cassettes back then, man. Right. And I, I, one of the examples I've used in, in a couple interviews on this show, so I'm sure listeners will hear it a couple times through, is if you picked up an Animals single in 1963, 64, and it just said songwriter J.L. Hooker, like, that, that didn't mean anything to you. If you're in, like, Cleveland, right. Ohio or something like that, you don't know who J.L. Hooker is, and you can't <laughs> you can't exactly uh, pull him up online and figure out that's John Lee Hooker. Uh, your local record shop probably doesn't have his records. Uh, they might not even be able to tell you who he is. You're probably going to have to subscribe to some sort of magazine or go to the reference desk at the library. Uh, so for my generation, it is easier, I think. I think it's easier to go back, and I think it is really, really great that you know, people want to go to these shows. I'm not speaking out of school when I tell this story because uh, she's told it to a great many people. Uh, but uh, Terry Hemmert is, you know, one of my mentors and, and she's helped me with this show. She'll be in the show notes, of course. Uh, she knows Mavis and she's known Mavis for many years. And she talked to Mavis before Mavis headlined. I can't remember if it was Coachella or Bonnaroo. It was one of the two. And Mavis was worried. She was worried that these younger you know, people wouldn't get her, you know, that she's, you know, she's like, at this time, she was probably in her 60s or or even early 70s. And she was going out in front of a bunch of 20 somethings at a music festival of 50,000 people. And, you know, Terry told her, they want authenticity, they'll get you, you just have to go out there and be you. And sure enough, they loved her, you know. And I think that that makes me feel really happy about the state that the genre is in, even if I can't necessarily think of five or 10 names off the top of my head of younger people making it. Sure. No, that makes sense that that the the audience is not aging out, even if the artists are. That's an interesting realization. This is getting profound. I feel like. Oh wow! I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take it there. (laughs) No, but we're coming. We're coming to some sociological analysis here. Where the you're right though. The the music's not necessarily fading out, but the but the artists are, and uh, that's very very interesting to me. Uh, As we start to close down a little bit, I'd love to go to both of you and just get any closing remarks about the blues or something that you've loved about it or something about your life that the blues has either either changed or just the way you've consumed music is different, anything like that. Uh, Peter, what about you? I I can't really break out how it's changed because it's it's been a part all along, but I, I'd like to mention a couple artists that I that we haven't been mentioned that are are great blues players. Uh, one Sonny Landreth is a great uh, slide player. Uh, I've I've got a couple of his albums, which is always fun, and that's more of the the Delta blues than that. And uh, I'm, it's actually interesting you bring up Sonny. Um, I met Sonny four years ago at, at Guitar Town in Copper Mountain in Colorado. And he was phenomenal. I had never seen him play before. I never even knew who he was. Uh, Unfortunately, it was at the loss of why I was there. Because I went to Guitar Town because one of the artists I wanted to see so badly was Mark Selby. If you've never heard Mark Selby before, blues fans everywhere, go listen to him. Uh, This is the guy that wrote Blue on Black for Kenny Wayne Shepard, and then Kenny Wayne Shepard never really gave him credit for it. Uh, And he's phenomenal, and he barely ever tours, and he's never really gotten his name out there, and I went to go see him at Guitar Town. I was so excited. And he gets up on stage for an hour set, plays about uh, three songs, 
and then Sonny shows up, and, and everyone's happy to see Sonny, but it just turned into a Sonny set. <laughs> I think Mark played three songs, and it was great. But uh, Sonny Landreth, just come back some other time. I really want to see Mark Selby again. Uh, but that is a really good suggestion. I would, I would also throw out uh, Larry Carlton's a really good suggestion from that more slightly obscure blues pool. He's great. Landreth's great. Um, Bill Kirchin, even though he tends to border on rockabilly, he's really great. Uh, George and then Thorogood. A, George Thorogood, of course. You know, uh, what is it? What I'm I'm gonna show. I'm showing my age here in terms of being younger and not have grown up with it. What is it? I drink. Um, I drink alone. I drink alone. Else, I drink alone. That's right. Yeah. And when I drink alone, I prefer to be by myself. Right. Just as friends, Jack, Will, and something or other. That almost turned into a really. I am digging this as a spoken word piece. I really yeah, like it. I, this is... I was about to say. I was really hoping that Peter would just go I mean, all the way. I, I'm in a band with a with the uh, with a couple of my cousins, and uh, we do. I saw her standing there, and okay. the the first verse I do is like a British lord. She was just seventeen. You know <laughs> what I mean? What what? And then like it. it then and we do it regularly after that but that's like that's a good thing just 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 throwing it out there i'm not sure if i know what he means like i feel like paul needs to talk about this just 17 it's a little young i actually think that's that's actually a joke that uh that that jerry seinfeld levied at him at the white house a couple years ago uh (laughs) yeah i i love all these artists i love this music i i grew up with the blues i grew up going the going the guitar town which is a blues festival i grew up listening to buddy guy uh i grew up listening to kenny wayne shepherd and it means so much to me which is why i've been working so hard on this show and it's just a, a beautiful genre especially here in the city of chicago that needs to stay alive and i think it's in a it's in a troubling time right now. Um, the Blues Fest is now being moved to Millennium Park from Grant Park, which will make it smaller. Uh, that's really the only event of the year that champions the blues in Chicago. It's certainly not like Memphis or New Orleans where you go there and it's constant uh, immersement in their culture. Uh, the The Chicago Blues Clubs are they get gentrified they move neighborhoods they shut down they get closed because of all sorts of permits and things they need to get the city doesn't necessarily make it easy for them and that all makes me a little scared but then i get talking with people about it like we are the day and i'm like oh it's in an okay place it'll figure itself out uh and and phil um i'd love some closing remarks from you as well just about the blues or anything you'd like to talk about i don't i'm i'm in peter's camp a little bit it's hard to sum up something so uh i'm going to steal peter's word so ubiquitous in all of music uh it's it's so big i think it it affected me uh just in influence in uh my music education as far as uh having a knowledge a working knowledge of artists and where the music came from uh seeing and sort of understanding the history of it and seeing how it branched into country and into into folk and, and, you know, straight up rock and roll and, and pop and every, you know, it all, it all goes back to the blues, which, you know, comes from older folk music and comes from African music. You know, you can trace it both ways and it's, it's just really interesting. And it also sort of, I think something as simple as a uh, one, four, five chord structure unlocks so much, uh, knowledge, basic knowledge of how to play a song when you when you are a musician, you know, to approach figuring out 
a song, uh, just having that root to work from, like if I can figure out this chord, I can unlock the rest because it's probably somewhere close to this structure. You know, like for me, that was huge when I was playing guitar a lot and trying to figure out how to play stuff. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, just little things like that. Um, the, diving into the blues when I was in high school, I don't listen to it as much as I used to, but I, I still see it everywhere. You know, I see it in country music and in Willie Nelson albums. And, uh, you know, I can pick out, I can pick out guitar players in other genres and go, that guy's a good blues guitar player too. You know what I mean? Like speaking of like Willie Nelson, you know, oh, and, yeah. and go, that guy can a great rock blues in, a, artist. in a blues band. I know he can because he can do it in this genre and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's been one of those things that for 20 to 30 years has been in some way, shape or form in my life. Uh, whether I've listened to it exclusively or just tangentially, um, or just been influenced by it in some way, it's the blues is always there. And, and, uh, you know, just talking about, talking about it tonight is, is sort of like, I want to, I want to say it'll always be there, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it gives you a little pause, uh, sometimes to say, well, what's really happening with it. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it'll always be, it'll, it'll always be on my record shelf in, in some way, shape or form. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really what I wanted out of this conversation was to just fan fanboy about the blues a little bit, because this is a show that focused, this is going to be essentially the last episode that has focused on, you know, historical analysis and, you know, a lot of, you know, insider baseball of how blues gets made in the industry and what record labels and artists have to do in order for, you know, things to happen the way they need to happen. And I think it's great just to step outside of all that and just talk about it as fans. Uh, I want to thank you both so very, very much. Of course, in the show notes, you will be able to find Peter's uh, image manipulation on YouTube, and then we'll put all social media links there as well. And for Phil, we will have his art and then links to all of his stuff over on Blazing Caribou as well, and that's philrude.com. Is there anything I miss from either of you? No, that'll do it, man. Thank you so much. It was a complete pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me, Brett. Thanks. enjoyed that conversation as much as I did because at the end of the day it really is all about the people who love the music and help keep it 
alive. And that's what I'm trying to do with this show, and I hope that in some small way I have succeeded, that you have enjoyed exploring the blues with me. That's what this show is all about. If you did enjoy that, share the show. Let your friends know about it. Leave a rating on iTunes. I only like to say that once in a whole podcast series after I've done my job at the very end. Because if you feel that it was worthwhile to go leave some stars, that'll help more people find it, which is very important because more people will find Chicago Blues. And as you might have noticed in many of these conversations, it really needs you to find it. A new generation of blues fans need to come around to keep this music alive. And I hope in a small way I've done my part to help with that. I want to send out some thank yous at the end of this show to Terry Hemmert over at WXRT here in the city of Chicago. Terry Hemmert helped me put this show together. She is my mentor. She is my friend. She is so immensely appreciated. She is so remarkably insightful and intelligent about the music and all things in life. I appreciate her so much, and without her, this show could not have happened. Thank you, thank you, Terry. Thank you, Bruce Iglauer. Thank you, Bill Dahl. Thank you, Frank Bang, Derek Brosell, Keith Dixon, Phil Rude, Peter Fisher, all of them. That wonderful art, that's actually Phil's. We talked about that in this episode. But what you are looking at every time you listen to this show is Phil's fantastic art that he helped create for this show. One more time, my name is Brett Stewart. You can find me on Twitter at Rivers Rubin, and you can find me on my website at brettdavidstewart.com. Please connect with me. I would very much love to hear from you. It's been a pleasure. See you soon. The blues don't care.